We're excited tonight to start a brand new series called The Parables of Jesus. And I want to take just a few minutes here to introduce this subject of parables, give a definition, and look at a couple of scriptures in particular. The word parable is really a transliterated word from the Greek word parable. And it's a placing beside, literally, or a comparison. Someone said it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And it might interest you to know that as far as a parable proper, the book of, or the gospel of John, the fourth gospel, does not have any. All of them are included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when we look at parables, we see the Lord trying to teach spiritual lessons and doing so by looking at ordinary things. I want you to open your Bible tonight, and I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going, and you will remember that in the very first part of this, he introduces one of seven parables that he will give here in this chapter. And the first of those is uh, sowing the seed. And he sows some by the wayside and some on stony ground and some among thorns and some on good ground. And he will make an application of that. But what I want to read is verse 10 on down through verse 15, because after he gives the parable, his disciples came to him, verse 10 said, and said to him, why do you speak unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given for whatsoever hath, uh, for whosoever hath to him shall it be given and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him it shall be taken even that which he has. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they, seeing, see not, and hearing, they do not hear, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which said, By hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Now, briefly, I want to go back to the Old Testament from which that quote was taken that the Lord uses. It's found in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 9 and uh, 9 and 10. When we look at the verse that is quoted there by the Lord, is we're looking at the commission of Isaiah as a prophet. He sees a vision in the first part of this chapter. But then the Lord tells him in verse 9, Go and tell this people, Hear indeed, but do not understand, and see indeed, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn again, and be healed. Now, that's an odd statement that the Lord will be making, but he's looking at a rebellious group of people. And he's looking at a group of people that do not want to do his will, know his will, understand his will. And so he says, I want you to speak in parables. And when you look at chapter 13, the Lord is doing the same thing. So there are going to be some things that we're going to bring out in this. There are going to be some reasons why uh, that parables are, are so productive, so good, and, and the reason that the, the Lord used them. I wrote down just a few. Uh, one of them is people will listen to a story and oftentimes they get a lot more meaning out of that rather than if you just gave them a law or a basic principle. Uh, you know, like on the sower, he said, you know, he, he give the different kinds of ground and it's very easy to understand why seed grows good in, in the ground, but it doesn't grow good on the wayside or the uh, stony places are the thorns. And he makes an application of that, that it, that is the heart of an individual. But people will also 
make more of an application of a story and are less likely to uh, reject that intended message. Now, uh, we have that situation whenever Nathan came to David after his sin with Bathsheba, which we'll get into a little bit later. But let's look at a couple of more reasons why parables are effective. Parables can hide light from those who love darkness. And that's what Isaiah is saying, God through Isaiah, and that's what the Lord is saying. But it reveals much to those that are seeking truth. Those that are seeking truth will not rest until they understand the meaning of this story and this parable and the application of it. And so it, it has a lasting effect upon people. And then lastly, Jesus used parables, I think, to keep his message from his enemies who were just waiting to use his words against him. And so we see a lot of things in parables that uh, that make them, you know, the the proven way of teaching and talking for the Lord during this period. And Ray, I'll let you have it for a little bit. Well, you were doing really well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, of course, there are, there are passages, as you read from Isaiah, and another one that we might look at in Psalms 78, where prophecies were made that the teaching of Messiah would come in, in times in very odd situations. I remember one verse that said, with people of other tongues. And he was talking about tongue speaking. And you would think, well, why in the world would, would tongue speaking happen unless everybody understood the tongue? And if you study First Corinthians, you would realize that there were some reasons for that. But as we're looking at parables, one thing that I thought about too in this is there in Mark 4, and Matthew seems to be the strongest book as far as explaining the purpose of parables. But Mark 4, verse 10 on down, had a, a point that I thought was interesting. It said, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. And that was the parable of the sower. He said, to you, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, seeing that they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Well, that sounds very strange. That sounds like you don't really want them to see. And I think there was some element of that in, in the, the delivering of the parables, because understand something. The Lord was coming to establish the kingdom, and he was coming to preach a gospel that would, fulfill the righteousness of the old law. But in doing so, as he brought all things to completion, it would also be a, a condemnation against the teachers of that time. He, uh, he spoke some of his parables to those teachers. Now, if someone understood a spiritual principle and they didn't like that spiritual principle, but they weren't ready to believe that spiritual principle, then it would be very easy for those folks to react in anger and in a very destructive manner. And it could have pushed the crucifixion and the persecution of the apostles to, uh, to another level very quickly and in, in early in the ministry. So I think that, that this shows something about the greatness of the teaching of, of Christ and of the wisdom of God. Not only were these parables designed to illustrate spiritual truth, but all there was a sense there in which they called the listeners. I remember a preacher one time, he preached a very good sermon. He entitled it, Lord, why did you write the Bible like you did? Now, Lord, if you stop and think about it, there were times that God Jehovah in the Old Testament would give a simple message. And it was a simple message. I'll give you one. He told Pharaoh, let my people. Over and over, that was said to him. And sometimes the Bible says Pharaoh would harden his own heart. And sometimes it says God hardened his heart. Well, what was going on was it was, it was the message. He did not change the message, even though Pharaoh didn't like it. Now, I know a lot of people today, when it comes to plain Bible teaching, uh, I just in the last year, I, I just think it's been very interesting to me 
uh, for a long period of time. I never had anybody take opposition to anything I was saying much. But in the last year, I've had people, when I would preach on the sanctity of life, I've, I've had visitors get up and just just be, be disagreeable altogether and angry about it because, you know, you, you, you've just condemned abortion. Or if you preach on homosexual, just read Romans chapter 1. It's going to make a lot of people mad. Yeah. And but the problem with that, it's not that it's not that the Lord is not worried about that or doesn't care about that. He does care about that, but at the same time, we have to have a truth that's going to save. But in the beginning, when he was reaching out to these apostles, uh, he had to protect them a little bit from those that are on the outside. Now these parables were designed if someone really wanted the truth, and I'm going to say it this way, was really a humble, down to earth kind of person. These stories and narratives that uh, that were parables would have impact. They may not grasp it at first, but it would cause them to want to think, "What's he talking about? I need to I need to figure this out." But at the same time, for the arrogant, the hateful, and the dangerous, they just saw it as a silly little story that they didn't need to pay attention to yet. Now there will you will see. Uh, you mentioned John had no parables, but even though John had no parables, there was a passage over in the book of John, I'm talking about parables now, but talking about how the Lord uh, was speaking sometimes in uh, kind of a figurative manner and, and not, not plainly like the apostles thought he should. And do you recall in John 16, verse 25, these things I've spoken to you in figurative language. But the time's coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. Let me stop. I am so wonderfully glad that the parables are in that Bible. A third of the Lord's teachings was done in parables. I am so glad that those parables are written because I have learned so much kingdom truth, kingdom ethics, uh, some of the things you and I talked about. How we, how we, God looks at us. How we look at God. How we look at each other from the parables. He said, "But in that day, you will ask in my name. I do not say that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father Himself loves you. That's pretty clear here, because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father, and I've come into the world. And again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Now, watch this. The disciples said, "Well, you're speaking plainly, and you're not using figures of speech." not similes or metaphors or parables. Now we're sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Well, I, honestly, the, the Lord very ironically said, so you now believe? Do you realize you all are going to leave me? I mean, your faith is not there yet. But one of the things I, I really appreciate about parables, Lord, is that the truth is so simple. You know, you, you explained how we got the word parable and parabole or parabole. The word bowling means a ball. You, you throw it alongside, and the image was, well, actually, it reminded me of those uh, bolos that those uh, Spanish cowboys used to, uh, Brazilian cowboys would turn around their heads, there'd be two balls, and they'd sling it, and they'd whirly bird, go around the legs of the animal, pull it to the ground. Yeah. And you have two balls flying side by side. Well, now, in these stories that we're going to be talking about, and I'm pretty sure for quite a while, we're going to be looking at some very powerful studies and uh, spiritual meanings. But first of all, we're going to look at some earthly story as we get into it. And we're going to be able to see these stories develop. Then we're going to see whatever figures and whatever comparisons were made to the people in the stories. But then suddenly a great spiritual truth is going to slap us right side the head. And we're going to see it. You see, it's like getting hit with a with a Brazilian bolo. You know, <laughs> I can't wait to, to get into this. I can't but, either. Go but, ahead. But when we but when we, we we need to use some synonyms that people will will understand. We're going to be looking at things that have similitudes in them, and they have great stories in them and narratives in them. There's comparisons, illustrations, analogies. I mean, these are all great figures of speech. One fellow once said this about the parables, and I loved it. He said, they are works of art and weapons of spiritual warfare. They are that, no doubt about wow. it. Wow, yeah. Let me let me give everybody, Ray, just kind of a rundown of what we're kind of thinking. Then I want, I want to come back to that uh, 
third and third, one third, one third, and one third in a moment because you kind of uh, got my interest in that. But anyway, here's what we are planning. Tonight we're just going to introduce parables and we're going to talk about uh, things in an introductory form. And then we're going to break them down into categories. I, I think that's a good way to go. Uh, we may change along the way. Uh, you know, we've been known to do that. And uh, But we're, we're going to look, first of all, at parables concerning hypocrites. Now, that's interesting, and uh, you'll want to hear that. And then parables about the kingdom. Now, a lot of these that we're looking at out of Matthew chapter 13 will fall into that category. But then there are parables of God's concern for sinners. Uh, Luke 15 contains some of those. And then a parable of man's concern for man. Not only are we looking at how God looks at man and, and how he has certain concern, but also man ought to have that same concern. One of those is obviously the Good Samaritan. And then parables concerning the uncertainty of riches. Then parables concerning a changed life. Then parables concerning response. How should I respond to the Word of God? And then parables concerning our talents. And then finally, parables concerning our watchfulness. Now, I want to jump back for just a minute to the one-third that you were talking about. In my research over the years, uh, one writer said, For some months Jesus taught in the synagogues and on the seashore of Galilee, as he had before taught in Jerusalem. And yet, without a parable, he didn't use a parable. So we're looking at this first third. Uh, and the reason that he changed to this uh, parabolic type teaching is because the direct teaching was met with scorn and unbelief and hardness and, and unbelief. And he just wasn't accomplishing anything. So for a third of his ministry, he now begins to speak in parables. I like what you said. Because if you are interested in spiritual things and there is a, a man that gets up and gives a spiritual message, you know it's a spiritual message because he's likening this to the kingdom of heaven. And then he talks about a man that's just going out and throwing seeds in, in various types of soil. Then you're going to take that message home with you and you're going to uh, concentrate, meditate on that story. And that story will stay with you. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to reach into each compartment of that story. What does it mean? Where, where's he going with this? Now, if you don't care anything about spiritual things, it's kind of like in, uh, in Acts 17, whenever the philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans were listening to the Apostle Paul. They said, what will this babbler say? You know, uh, they just wasn't getting anything out of what he was saying. Well, a lot of people did that with the Lord. But then in the last third of the Lord's ministry, he nails things down. He begins to make application to things. I want to read you a story. It is kind of a parable, I guess you could say, in the Old Testament. And I think, Ray, you said, what, there are 40 or 50 uh, parables that you've ID'd in the Old Testament? Well, basically, yeah, there, there could be more or less. But the reason I said that, there were sentences and ideas that could have fit into that narrative. But at the same time, uh, I could not find a definitive number uh, from any commentator or help that I had. Well, Everybody was floating on that. We're the same way in the New Testament. Uh, mm -hmm. It is suggested that there are anywhere from 30 to 51. And 30, you know, just the common parables, but then 51 if you really get down and uh, you want to make, you know, just a sentence or a, a few comments into a parable. But anyway, here's one out of the Old Testament. Now, here's the problem. David has had an illicit relationship with Bathsheba. And God wants to deal with that. But you know exactly what's going to happen if somebody goes up to David and said, what you did was wrong. You put Bathsheba's husband Uriah on the front lines and you got him killed trying to cover up the fact that she got pregnant and is, is having your baby. And you were wrong about this, you know. Well, David would just, uh, you, you know, he, he, he'd buck against that. He'd harden his heart, as you and I probably would. So here's what God does. He sends Nathan to David. 
2 Samuel 12, verse 1. And he came to him and he said, you know, there were two men, two men in a city. One of them was rich and the other was poor. Rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate from his, his morsel from uh, his own cup, and he lay in his bosom, and he was like a daughter to him. Now, you get the, the illustration here. We've got a rich man that's got all kind of lambs and sheep, and we've got a poor man that's only got one, and it's like a daughter. You know, it's, it's like part of the family. And there came a traveler to the rich man, and he uh, spared not to pull from his own flock to dress it for the wayfaring man who had come, but he took the poor man's lamb and he dressed it for him, and uh, and they ate it. And so Nathan tells David this. Well, when David hears this story, his anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as Jehovah liveth, the man that has done this is worthy to die. And you shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. In other words, David said, I want to know, first of all, who that man is. I want that man dealt with. And I want restitution made for this poor man that he will get everything that he has coming to him. Because this this rich man that took this lamb and the only lamb that this man had, he was wrong and he needs to pay. And Nathan said to David, you're the man. And David all of a sudden knew that Uriah had one wife, and that was Bathsheba. David had many wives. He had many concubines, but he took Uriah's, and he knew exactly what was happening. Now, let me ask you a question, Ray, and I'm asking our listeners as well. If Nathan had walked into the door and said, David, you're wrong with what you did, or rather tell this story, which is more effective? Well, he'd have died if he could come in there before the king and said, you're wrong. But I don't, th- I don't think that, that Nathan feared death. I think he feared that David wouldn't see what he had done. And what he did, what he did, Lloyd, that, that story struck at the, the part of David that was still humble. Yeah. That struck at the shepherd boy. Yeah. yeah you yeah. see, he was, he'd grown up as a shepherd boy. And he loved the animals and he would give his life for his animals. When he suddenly realized that he, in his pride and arrogance and laziness as a king, had allowed himself to cross that line and take really an honorable man's wife and shame her and shame really the, the, the nation of Israel, he realized, I have sinned before the Lord. A simple story about a lamb made him, and by the way, let me ask you a question. What is the one thing that can bring a sinner to salvation today. It's the story about another land. Yep, it is. One, the one that never did anything wrong, never hurt anybody, but died for us. Yep. Well, it was said early in the Gospels, early in the Gospel of John, uh, you know, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The sins of the yep. world. Yeah. You know, parables, though, I think that they really do two, three things. I think, first of all, they reveal. They reveal these hard-to-understand uh, spiritual lessons, and some of those are, are really hard to understand. But whenever you can, you can tell them in a story or tell them in a parable, it's easy to reveal that. But at the same time, it will conceal it. You know, the Lord said, don't cast your pearls before swine. And he has all of this spiritual information here. And so for a third of his ministry, he's teaching that kind of uh, on the sly a little bit. He's telling these stories, and, and you've got to kind of look at it. But then there's something else that it does rather than just reveal or conceal. It perpetuates because yes. you think of this story, don't you? You wonder about this story. You study about this story. You try to make the application of this. And it's just easier to remember a story. You know, so many times uh, when I preach, I've had people come up. You, you might tell a story in the sermon to illustrate what you were trying to teach them in, in, in a spiritual nature. And maybe it was a funny story or something. But then people would come up after the after the lesson and they'd say, that was the funniest story. 
And I've often said, I hope you got more out of my lesson than just that story, because that story <laughs> was trying to teach you uh, the spiritual nature of the lesson that I was bringing in, and it was a good comparison. Well, that's all the Lord's doing, isn't he, Ray? That is so. That is so. And, you know, uh, as you brought up the Old Testament in this, I, I did quite a bit of study just to try to, first of all, get a flavor for the uh, parables that were in the Old Testament, although we're going to focus on the New. Because I knew that many of the prophets used parables back then, and I remember in Hosea 12, Jehovah said, But I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. Now watch. I have also spoken by the prophets, have multiplied visions, and I have given symbols. Now that's what the New King James says, but many translations say parables, through the witness of the prophets. Well, you, you brought up about Nathan and the poor man's lamb. Go back to Balaam. He dealt with the Moabites and the Philistines. And Jothan talked about the trees and the king, which is a, uh, an incredibly powerful um, story and parable. Samson, about the, the, how the strong and sweetness came out of it. And uh, the Tekoan woman, the two brothers that were striving. And, and Joash, the king, he, he talked about the thistle and the cedar. And Isaiah, the vineyard that brought forth wild grapes. And Ezekiel, the lion's whip. I mean, just all the boiling pot the great eagles and the white. I mean, there are just so many gorgeous stories in both the old and the new. But but I can see, since Jesus was the spirit in those prophets, this idea of, of a parable was a strong teaching tool, as you have said. And, and you know, the, it, the ultimate goal of the parable was to humble the heart of understanding toward repentance. But, I want people to get this, but they could also harden the dishonest heart, the prejudicial heart, the indifferent heart, and especially the lazy heart, because they just wouldn't get it. They just wouldn't get it. Wow. So, so you're saying then that a parable is a very effective tool in taking somebody that's not quite ready for the <laughs> spiritual lesson, and it... Uh, it, it avoids them getting a hard heart and then not being able to progress in the gospel. Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is sometimes when, we, when we're not ready for a spiritual truth, honestly, uh, we haven't got enough information for a spiritual truth. I'll give you one. Let me give you one, just a case in point. You and I both believe that Jesus is God, but there's a large number of folks that do not. And there are a large number of folks that they, they think that they can trap Christians with this. Uh, where did Jesus say that he was God, and where did he say, worship me? Well, of course, we call that a worded question. That, that's set up to make it difficult to be answered. Because I can't read a sentence where Jesus put all those words in one sentence. That I am God, worship me. Now, I can read inferences and statements and statements about that. I can read where he accepted worship and so forth. So I always turn that around, and I'll say, well, where did he say he's not God and not to worship him? Well, again, that's a wordy question. So you end up seeing people battling. But here's my point. I think many of those people need time to understand. It's kind of like 1 Corinthians 8, where not everybody has a knowledge of truth. And sometimes, in, like in the concept of a parable, the, the parable won't necessarily turn that fellow off because he didn't get it. Right. But, but if he stays with it, all of a sudden he'll go, wow, I see it. Yeah. Because he's ready to see it. And, and, and I, think, I think there was a, a kind of a, a catch-22 in it or a, a fail-safe mechanism in parables that would allow people time to grow a little bit before they really got the truth and not drive them away from the truth. Now, the problem that you have, the, the, in the beginning, I think the Lord was really speaking strongly to his disciples and, uh, but had something, remember what he said in Matthew 13. Now, let me show you. They had something that, that the Pharisees and many of the Jews did not have. He made that statement. He said, for whoever has to him, more will be given and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now, for years, the way I viewed that passage was really kind of black and white. I kind of thought, well. 
somebody that uh, just hateful and totally disbelieves. But but no, he said he has something. And but but the problem is whatever he has can be taken from him. Well, you might have a little interest in truth in the beginning. You might be moved to come because some friend brought you there, and, and it, it's you're, you got a curiosity, but you're not you're not developed. You're not thinking. You're you're not really studying the scriptures. You don't really love the truth. But let me tell you something: when you love the truth, and you open up your heart to the truth, these these parables and, and all the other sayings of the Lord and the teachings of the Bible can become yours. But the problem is, a lot of people want to say no unless the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to see it. There, you, you can wish it all you want, you can't have it. Well, that would deny what a parable is to start with. Yeah. But he said, even, even those that have a little, it, that'll be taken from them because they'll eventually cool off so much if they don't study the parable to understand it that they'll lose what little interest they did have. So I think there was a protection in it as well as a revealing, as, a, as an exclusion thing that would separate the unbelieving heart, the hard heart, the prejudicial heart, away from the ignorant but innocent heart that really wanted to learn. That heart would get it. And again, I said in the beginning, you had to have a down-to-earth, humble attitude because when you, look, when you first looked at the parables, they were, they were very earthy parables. Now, I heard a preacher one time say this about a preacher friend of mine. And I, now listen to what I'm going to say, Lord. This, these are two preachers in the Church of Christ, okay? okay. One, pre, one preacher was a simple, down-to-earth man teaching the truth, best he knew how, like me and you. The other fellow said, I'm a scholar. I'm a scholar. And he said, I heard that preacher preach one time. I know who you talked about. And he said, he preached about a rabbit running through the snow, leaving a track. And he preached he was hunting the rabbit. And when he got to the brush pile where the rabbit went, he circled the brush pile and no track come out the other side. So he knew where the rabbit was. And he was talking about trailing truth in the gospel. And he said, I thought, man, I ain't no rabbit hunter. I don't care about hunting rabbits. Yeah. He said, I'm a scholar. Now, you just got the difference between the Pharisees and the apostles. Yeah. It's, it's a fail-safe uh, in, many, in many regards so that you don't get too much too quick, too much before it's time. You know, truth is something that has to simmer for a while with you. You got it. You cannot get it all at one time. A lot of young Christians want to learn everything, and they want to learn it quick. Well, there's a danger in that because, first of all, it's impossible to learn it all. I, I've often said I wish we had a USB port in our minds where we could just <laughs> plug it in and know it all. But then we deprive ourselves of all of the contemplation and the meditation and the study. You know, that is wonderful stuff, especially whenever you and your Bible come up with connecting one dot to another dot to another dot. And it's 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 easy to use the vehicle of a parable because it's a simple story, but you're trying to figure out what does it mean? Now, I'm going to tell you something, Ray. There is another problem that results from this. How do we properly approach and Amen. understand a parable? Amen. In the first place, here's what I do. I have often said that one of the first things that you have to do is you have to understand the setting of the story. In other words, who is speaking? To whom is the speaker speaking to? What does the context suggest that the speaker is trying to accomplish? Now, that's fairly easy to do in all of these because the Bible kind of explains itself. Uh, and then the, the critical factor of it then is determining what is the meaning of this parable. Uh, it, and it's important, I think, to realize that a parable, for the most part now, it, it, not, it doesn't always apply, but for the most part, a parable usually has one primary lesson. You don't take every part of the parable and break it down and make every piece of it mean something. There is something that is involved there, like uh, the parable of the sower. What's involved? A good heart. And if you have this kind of heart, or this kind of heart, or this kind of heart, 
that seed may last a little while, may last longer in one type of uh, heart than it will the other. But the only way that that seed will grow and thrive and be successful is in a good heart. That, that's the story that he's trying to tell there. And we can look at that parable and try to break it down and try to make everything mean everything uh, else. And, you know, the, the parable of the prodigal son, what's the story there? That this boy was lost and now he has repented. Now he's alive. Now he is saved. That, that's the point of it. And the father loves him. And all of that is, is brought in there. But it's really just a simple parable that you're talking about there. It's a simple lesson that's trying to be brought forward. And so don't try to make a parable say too much. Do you agree with that, Ray? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that uh, one of the dangers of parables, number one, is to try to take every point in that parable as some literal a spiritual, you know, thing. When, when many times, what that, what you've got going in that parable, number one, if you just understood the elements of a parable, that you have a narrative sense to the parable. That is the story. Now, that story, it could be a true story. It could be something that was uh, manufactured to illustrate principle. That that doesn't necessarily mean the story is. I think they're always true, but I, in the sense of uh, truth in them, but not necessarily is that the main point. Then you will begin to see the figurative sense in that parable as it's applied to other natural persons and things within the story. But finally, there's a spiritual meaning. And you said it well, usually one strong spiritual meaning that illustrates principles of divine truth. But here's the problem, and I've seen this. People make conclusions from parables that sometimes even deny clear Bible teaching later on. And I've seen them, I've seen them pit passages against clear teaching that that's done, you know, in the book of Acts and, and so forth. Uh, one illustration would be there in the parable of sower. I heard, heard a fellow one time, he said, now, according to that, only one out of four will hear the word. He said, only one out of four. He's trying to get, said, get too much out of it. He got too much out of it. <laughs> and, and so what I began to learn is that, first of all, and you said it well, we have to get the historic... First of all, we have to think about the time when that parable was delivered. Right. And we have to think about the history going on at that time and the cultural issues of that day and and the spiritual um, problems that men and women had, especially when the Lord was trying to teach, and the moral implications and meanings. We, we, we have to put all that into place before we look at it from a 21st century view. And what I learned, that many times in parables— uh, the Lord will straighten the parable up and explain it to you if you'll just give him time. Uh, he gives, he gives, it says in Matthew 22, he speaks of the parable of the kingdom of heaven, like the certain king arranged a marriage for his son. And he goes through a whole rigmarole there. And then in verse 14, he said, Here's many are called and few are chosen. That was the whole point. Yeah. That's what he was trying to get across to everybody. And you move through, since we're by and large in Matthew. You move through in Matthew 25, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, verse, verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. That's his point. Yeah, and I know a bunch of people trying to predict that day and hour. <laughs> and, what and what they're doing, they're running around without any oil in their lamps. Yeah. Trying to predict when he's going to come back. And that, that's crazy. It's just crazy. Sometimes in, in a parable, what we call the... Uh, prologue the, the state the very first state sentence will tell you what he's going to talk about in, in luke 18 1 he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not to lose heart then he said in their certain city a judge who didn't fear god regard man and a widow a widow wore him out you know coming to him all the time yeah but but he told you what the prayer was what the whole thing was about and sometimes at the end and sometimes what i call an interpretive parenthesis is is placed around Around a parable, he will begin telling you what the parable is about, do the parable, and then in the end, he'll sum it up and tell you what it's about again. Yeah. Here's and what I'm going to say. Here's what I say. And here's what I told you I was going to say. And here's what I told you. And there's no point in messing this up. Right. We, we, we I, I wrote this down in my notes, and I, I knew you were going to really talk about that. Understand a parable in its original setting. Now, now listen closely. What was going on in the life of Christ when he said it? And how was this supposed to impact 
the life of those people that would be his disciples before the cross and into the church age. And if you can get that, you probably won't miss the parable. Right. You know, another example of that, we uh, talked about the prodigal son a while ago. But if you just look at the first two verses of Luke 15, he's going to tell you why we talk about this, if if you want to call it, call it the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son, and the parable of the bitter elder brother, however you want to look at those and break them down. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners to hear him. That is, they're coming to Jesus. And the scribes and Pharisees murmured and said, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Now, what follows then is these group of stories or examples. And what the Lord is trying to say is that there's joy in heaven over just one sinner that repents. That's why I'm allowing these these sinners to draw near to me and to hear me and why I'm, I'm uh, you know, being with them. But we talked about getting one lesson from a parable, and, and 85, 90% of the time, that's what you're going to do. But if you look at a context like Matthew chapter 13, here is, is something else. Occasionally, you're going to find parables were given in a sequence in order to, to present different aspects of the same subject. He talks about, and this is about the kingdom now, it's about the seed of, of sowing that kingdom. He talks about the sower of the seed, and, and, and that gives him an opportunity to talk about the hearts. And he does go ahead and explain this to the disciples. But the next parable that he gives is about a man that sowed good seed, but then his enemy came along in the night and sowed tares. And so what's he got to do? He's going to allow the crop to continue to grow and then go in there and separate them. And then he talks about a mustard seed. And he, he went and sowed it into a field. And, you know, something that is really, really small can get really big. And, and he's just developing this whole seed uh, activity and, and uh, motive, if you will. And the kingdom of heaven in verse 33 is like leaven, which a woman hid in three measures. And, you know, the devil can plant things that will that will come back and, and hurt that seed. And then he kind of drifts away just a little bit because he's talking about the seed still. He's talking about truth, and that's what it is. And he said it's like treasure that's hidden in a field. Now, what would you do if you knew that there was... Uh, $20 million in gold coins buried by Civil War soldiers 155 years ago on an acre of land that is near you. i tell you what you'd do. You'd go to the bank. You wouldn't tell them what you were doing because uh, you'd be afraid that they'd jump up and buy it. But you'd borrow the money to buy that acre of land because you know there's treasure hidden there. He does the same thing with pearls. He does the same thing with, with the net. It, it's, it's cast out. But it brings in all kinds of stuff, and you got to separate. You got to know truth. You got to be looking for that good seed, and that's really all. Seven of those parables are dealing with this, with the Word of God, and what it is supposed to accomplish, how valuable that it is, and how that you need to hold on to it and make application of it, and let it define what is right and what is wrong. It's pretty simple, isn't it, Ray? It is, but yet at the same time, it's probably one of the most, I think, effective, beautiful ways to present the Word of God that, that we can find. And um, I thought of another thing, too, Lloyd. Parables, on occasion, would allow Jesus to speak to a group of people and not talk about them, but just speak truth to them so that they could maybe have a chance to hear it. Do you remember in uh, Luke 18, verse 9, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous yep. and despised others, two men. And, you know, he had an he had intent. He was speaking to people that were wrong. But instead of saying, you're self-righteous, you know, hypocrites, he never said that. He gave them this story of which man was justified. And by logic, they had to realize that they were the ones that weren't justified, you see. Yeah. So, so. When I, when I study the purpose of a parable from the Old Testament to the New, as we've seen, there were several reasons for those parables to come forth and, and to be delivered. 
And I'm, I think I'm blessed that I get to study the completed book of parables called the Bible. Yeah. I do too. And you know, uh, the subject that you just brought up, the example there, same thing is in the, the Good Samaritan. What he's trying to teach there is, uh, well, you know, he, he says uh, to the young man there, you know, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And so this young man trying to justify himself, he said, well, who is my neighbor? Well, you know, we've always had an external view of the word neighbor. If someone says, who is your neighbor? And I'll say, well, you know, uh, the graves live across from me, the prophets down the road, and, and those are my neighbors. Well, that's not the way that the Lord uses it. And so what he shows this young man is, he said, you know, there, there's a guy that has been left for dead there. A priest comes by. He walks on the other side of the road, acting like he didn't see him. Uh, there's uh, a, a Levite comes along. He does the same thing. I don't even want to deal with this guy. And then here comes a Samaritan, and he tends to his wounds. He takes him to an inn. He gets him some help. He's got to go to work, go on on his journey. But he leaves him in the care of the innkeeper, and he said, here's this amount of money. You take care of him. I'm coming back through. If there's any more charges, I'll take care of them when I come back. So then he turns around to the uh, young man, and he doesn't use the, the term neighbor in an external sense, but in an internal sense. He said, now, which one proved to be neighbor to him that was harmed and on the road? Well, it had to be the, the uh, uh, you know, the one that helped him. And so that is who neighbor is. But he he brought that all together through this wonderful little story that this man would, could easily understand. And there's not much that you, that, that you can argue with on that, is there, right? So a lot of times a parable stops arguments, doesn't it? It does. You know, Loy, in the end, um, going back to our text for just a minute, in Matthew 13, the Lord knew, since he quotes Isaiah, and you read that, that chapter, Chapter 6, I think it was. Yeah. Hearing you will hear, shall not understand, and so forth. See, he knew almost 700 years before that text was written in Matthew 13 that they still weren't going to listen. But notice he didn't change the, the message. He didn't change what he was going to tell them. He told them what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. Now, whether or not they heard it, was going to be up to whether or not they could love the truth or believe in him. And, and remember something. I don't think very few people really comprehended who Christ was right off the bat. I think it took a while. And even for the apostles, three, almost three and a half years, and I'm going to say, Lord, until he come out of the grave, they weren't fully on the same page he was on. But I think when he come out of that grave, things changed immediately baptism of the holy spirit and uh, suddenly they were endued with power from on high and they suddenly understood everything he said all truth is now yours well but when you look back at the audience that he was reaching to you look back at at, at a people that i'm sure they they went to synagogue and tried to learn but most of them couldn't read or write and many of the the leaders were already buried deep in the pharisaical traditions of you know, the, the Jewish traditions, maybe that's a broader term to use. But but the end result was there was so much antagonism. But he said this about his disciples, and I feel this myself, I, and I think you do too. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Now, I'm going to stop for just a moment. I've had some people tell me, well, that's a very Calvinistic text. No, it's not. Mm -mm. Are you going to say that when righteous men didn't get to hear the truth that these were hearing, that they were somehow not righteous men? They were righteous men, but they just weren't privy to this information yet. But what he is telling these disciples, you are truly a blessed group of people. You're so blessed. It's important for you to realize that 
you have learned and you are going to know what the greatest and best under the old law did not. Yep. Wow. That's why he said, John the Baptist, greatest of all the prophets, but he that's least in the kingdom is greater than he. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it, one thing that made us greater is the parables. It is. And it's just it, it, it's just the understanding and, and the timing. of You know, in the fullness of time, God brought his son in the flesh onto earth. It took time to build a foundation. That's what the law did. That's what the prophets did. That's why the law is called a schoolmaster. That's why the Lord said, you know, you, you see the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they speak of me. And so that foundation had to be laid. Now, those people wanted to understand everything that they could. And a lot of people, whenever uh, they're entangled there, you remember in Hebrews 5, uh, the writer of Hebrews is, is trying to talk about the priesthood of Melchizedek and make the application that Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he said, man, there's a lot of things I want to say about him, but I can't say it because you're tired of hearing it. You know, I look out there and, I, and, and you know, you people are almost snoring because you just can't grasp all that. People are that way. You can't get too much truth too quick. And so there's a fail safe in this, as we've already said, and a parable is it. That parable, that story will stay with you. You know, it has a spiritual meaning, but you have time to chew on it. You have time to digest it. You have time to go in there and meditate on it and, and bring out these kernels of truth. Man, you are still doing that after 40, 50 years of doing this, aren't we? I hope. That's what I I'm hope trying so to do. <laughs> Uh, what I'm trying to do, and and I think that the what we're what we're really saying in this thing is that well let, let me say this, Lloyd. I know too many professed Christians that are sermon hardened people. They've heard the same sermons on the same subject so long that they no longer listen to the lessons. They've walked the same footpaths and the word falls like rain on a rock in their heart. And I think it would have been totally different if they had been brought into the kingdom of God like, the, like Jesus was doing it here, slow and steady. And he was bringing a word that challenged the lazy thinker that would hinder those blinded by prejudice but but really what it did he challenged people with things that they could relate to to think about spiritual matters and sometimes we it, i don't know I, I i've been in places where if you just didn't say a sermon exactly with all the same points as the last fella did and with all the same ideas and i mean you know, just the same word for word, little sound bites. It was blasphemous, but, wasn't it? But nobody was listening. Right. Yeah. They weren't really listening. You, you Jesus know, we would not do that. We have a hard time. Jesus had a hard time because of the diversity of, of the audience in which we speak to. We speak to people that have been Christians for longer than we've been uh, Christians. Mm -hmm. We speak to people that have been Christians for only a lot of times a few days or a few months or a year or two. And you can't grasp, you know, people can't take in the same, uh, you know, depending on how long that they've been a Christian, how much that they've studied the Bible. But you and I have to touch each and every one of those people in some way. We got to challenge those that know a lot of truth, but we got to bring people along that, uh, are young in the faith. And a parable is a wonderful way to do that for both. And Jesus knew that. 